Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 28 for January 20th, 2011. We're going to take a little detour today. Yes. So we will have one story that takes place in the post-motion picture timeline, and but we're going to re- take a little side trip and read two comics that came out by DC Comics in the mid-1980s, which are set more in the... Uh, post Star Trek 2, right before Star Trek 3 timeline. Yes, and the storyline fits quite nicely between the two movies. Yep, and we chose that because last week we did uh, Star Trek Early Voyages number 2, was it? Yeah, we did Star Trek Untold Voyages number 2, which dealt with the origin of Savick. And then I mentioned to Ken that uh, that followed in line with pretty close to what DC did in the 80s, so that's why we have we read these two kind of out of order. Right. But uh, it fit more into the Savic timeline that we started last week, and we wanted to review this continuity of Savic's story uh, to while it was fresh on our memory. Sure. A little compare and contrast. Yep. So we're going to do uh, DC Comics Volume 1, Issue Number 7 and 8, and then we will do our... Um, comic strip number six which again the comic strip is based in the post Star Trek the motion picture timeline right which all three of these uh, I think were pretty good we'll get into more of it later but then they're not horrible no no, they're not horrible at all I think they're all pretty good I wouldn't quite give them four stars but they're all they're all well worth a read Uh, well I think I would give this first one uh, four stars so really yeah Four, four stars out of four Oh, I thought we were doing four stars out of five. Oh, okay. Okay, so we agree with each other. We just have different uh, star scales. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So they're good. They're really good. I mean, they're not absolutely the best, but they're really good. They're really good. Yep. All right, so saying that, let's go ahead and just jump into the uh, synopsis. Um, Like I said, this came out right before Star Trek Three came out. In fact, the uh, comic book adaptation came out in between Star Trek number 7 and Star Trek number 8. So continuity-wise, these two stories take place right before Star Trek 3, but if you were buying them off the newsstand and reading them, uh, you would read Star Trek 3 before you got to see Star Trek 8. So uh, just just to make things more confusing for anybody listening. Perfect. So uh, these have a cover date. This first one, number 7, has a cover date of August 1984. Um, it obviously... Cover date's always kind of a, a gray area because the cover date's usually about two months after it actually came out. So I think this comic actually came out in June because that's when Star Trek Three came out. Uh, but it, it had a cover date of eighty-four or August of eighty-four, so that's what we're going with. All right, entitled Pond Far, and the writer was Mike W. Barr. Uh, the artists were Eduardo. Barito and Ricardo Varigan. 
or Villigan. Uh, the letterer was John Costanza, colorist Michelle Wolfman, and editor Marv Wolfman. This is—is is this the same team that that did that issue last week, kid? The not not exactly. Michelle Wolfman and Marv Wolfman. Though? Yeah, they're the same. Uh, it's just this is the first time I think I've—I'm uh, not familiar with Eduardo and Ricardo. Although at first I thought it was a joke, but uh, yes, Eduardo and Ricardo, th- those guys are new. Um, but yeah, uh, we 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 hear from the Wolfmans plenty, right? In a lot so, of these uh, Star Trek comics. Yeah, so that Wolfman one was, oh, it was it was the DC Comics number nineteen. So that makes sense because this mm-hmm. is this is number seven of that same series. That's where I, I thought it was the Marvel one that we saw their names on. Okay, all right, yeah. So back on track. All right, so the uh, issue is called Ponfar, but on the cover it actually says the origin of Savic, which I think is a better a better title myself. It's definitely what made me buy it and read it when I was uh, a kid. So, synopsis. So, we find Lieutenant Savick writhing in pain when Ahura comes and uh, comes in and informs her that she is uh, to be in Hangar Bay 15 in full dress uniform in about 15. I guess it's not Hangar Bay 15. She needs to be in the Hangar Bay in 15 minutes. Uh, noticing Savick's strained tones, uh, Ahura inquires what's the matter to which Savick rudely states that it was an invasion on her personal life and cuts the communication so obviously she's not acting very Vulcan like Uh, the craft that arrives uh, in the hangar bay is a shuttlecraft carrying David Marcus it seems that the uh, proud papa is uh, transporting David to the USS Grissom uh, which will in turn be heading over to the Genesis planet uh, so that David can study it closer. And as we see, that, that is what happens in Star Trek Three. All right, so Kirk is, uh, prepares this huge banquet for all the senior staff to welcome David aboard. Uh, Kirk is making a toast about absent friends. I'm assuming he's talking about Spock, but maybe he's also including Ilya and Decker in there as well. Uh, and he also wishes confusion onto their enemies and specifically mentions Klingons and Romulans. In hearing the toast, Savick becomes very emotional and yells at the, cap- at the captain, Perhaps you've forgotten that I'm half Romulan! And she storms out. A uh, very confused Kirk, and I'm not quite sure if he's confused that she made the outburst or that it was a revelation that she was half Romulan. Anyways, a very confused Kirk and McCoy follow Savick uh, out into the hall and actually confront her in her quarters. Uh, once there, she breaks down, and McCoy confirms that she is going through Pond Far. She then goes ahead and uh, reveals her origin. So it seems that uh, way back when, Spock, uh, in his time between serving with Pike and Kirk, uh, is part of an exploration team, and they discover an abandoned Romulan settlement. Uh, there he finds a young girl who he finds some sort of kinship with, uh, assuming because they're both half-Vulcan, uh, he takes her to live with his parents and raise her in the Vulcan ways. On Vulcan, she pledges herself to Zahn, or is actually pledged to Zahn, um, in the time-honored Vulcan heritage of arranged marriages. Uh, Savick seems to idolize Spock, and even uh, perhaps thinks that she might love him from afar, uh, as he continues to send her records of his adventures. Uh, back in the present, Kirk orders the Enterprise to detour to Vulcan so that Savick and Zahn can make sweet, sweet lovin' or die. 
and they actually travel to Vulcan at a very speedy warp 12. On the bridge, uh, we get a scene of Sulu in command. Uh, when he gets the notification from Kirk of the change of plans, uh, he actually questions him on it, and Kirk explains why they're doing it. Uh, and then he relays the order to the helmsman. The helmsman then uh, questions Sulu about the change of orders, and then Sulu basically just says, and it seemed really weird. It was basically like, <laughs> he basically said, do you want to talk to the captain? I mean, <laughs> which I just thought was funny because he just did the exact same thing. Right. Anyways, once they get to Vulcan, a very uh, sick Savick is accompanied to Sarek's house uh, by Kirk and McCoy. Uh, Sarek informs them that Zahn is actually off-world on a secret mission, but he leaves his computer open so that Savick can hack into it and get the data she needs uh, while he steps out to check on Amanda. Um... Once once Savick gets the information she needs, she uh, teleports away, uh, so somehow she communicates to somebody to, to beam her away from the house. And um, we see Sarek and a very ill Amanda speaking to about uh, Spock's Katra. Uh, Amanda's very concerned, and she wants him to talk to Kirk immediately. Sarek tells her that uh, he will speak to Kirk, and then when he comes back out to the living room, Kirk and McCoy are heading out and basically tell Sarek that they'll talk to him later. Aboard the Enterprise, they discover that Savick has stolen a ship and that she's heading to the Galactic Barrier. Uh, once they actually catch up with her, uh, she starts attacking them and threatens to blow up the ship unless they give her Zahn to be continued. So Savick's actually in like a little tiny ship, and this little tiny ship is attacking the Enterprise. And she's threatening to blow it up. Mm -hmm. And she keeps on focusing on the aft shields, hoping to uh, get those to fail. Right. So she's obviously out of her mind, but she still has enough uh, enough cylinders firing that she knows how to take advantage of a weak weak spot. Yep. So good tactics. Uh, so. So, and, and apparently that little Vulcan ship's pretty, uh, pretty good little ship. Exactly, and it never really explains how she commandeers this this vessel, and yeah, who the, the it only, is that beams her away. Right. I mean, they only. I mean, the only thing they really say is that she used Sarek's authorizations or something to uh, at least get data, but also uh, I, I think. I think she used his credit card to get the ships or the ship. <laughs> but. Huh. So basically, when you're in Pon Far, you're going to break all the rules, baby, to get yourself uh, a little time with your honey. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be kind of embarrassing for them? I mean, it's a good thing they don't have emotions because <laughs> they I think, do have emotions. I think I would be pretty darn embarrassed if everybody had to get involved in a mating ritual. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's not like you could do it quietly and nobody knows. It's just like, all right, everybody, detour to Vulcan. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is like this is like the the same thing happened with the Spock. It's like, you know, you Vulcans, you, maybe you should just stay home. You know, just you know. Sounds like you guys should just should not be going around the galaxy unless you happen to be with your significant other. 
Exactly. And you know what? They they make a they make a big big point of it. It happens every seven years. Yep. So you know what? You could probably schedule a vacation around that time. Exactly. You know, get something on Outlook. You know, get it, get it set up ahead of time. Uh, you know, same thing with like werewolves and stuff. They always seem really surprised that they're turning into a werewolf. And then I'm even as a little kid, I was like, "Didn't you look at the calendar? Today exactly. is a full moon. Did, you know, did, you're a werewolf. <laughs> Why are you outside? Exactly. Why are you surprised? Anyways, overall, I enjoyed this the story though. I mean, it's set up for the next one. Which, yeah, which I enjoyed too. Which but is fine. So it's two parts. But this is the only one that actually goes into Savick's past, and and I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, now, even though it is two parts, it's still I, well. There's a lot of things going on. There's multiple stories going on here. But something I liked about the Marvel uh, Savick backstory is they seem to take a little more time with the uh, Spock and Savick. Uh, relationship, and you get a better idea why Spock, you know, cares so much for Savick. Right. Um, you know, th- there's a little bit more character development going on I- in that story, uh, but you do have a lot of action going on here, and, and there's a pretty, pretty. I mean, the whole story of the the whole Ponfar blood fever thing, uh, and the Romulans. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. Right, and this was, I mean, to me, this story, you know. It was the seventh and eighth issue of a of a series, so probably when they wrote the first six issues, they obviously did not know what was going to happen in Star Trek Three, or maybe even if if there was even going to be a Star Trek Three. So for me, this issue number seven and number eight really seem like a retcon kind of thing. So obviously they know what's going to happen in Star Trek Three, so now they kind of need to maybe backpedal a little bit and you know set up set up their continuity so that it could fit seamlessly in Star Trek 3 which obviously the movie is not going to have any ties into what happened between issues 1 and 8 of this of this comic book series so right. I mean if you watch Star Trek 3 it's supposed to happen like right after Star Trek 2 you know the Enterprise is right. damaged and it's coming back from the Genesis planet blah 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 um, so I guess they had to have a way for the Enterprise to get damaged again and for, you know, Savick and David to get on the Grissom and set up the whole Katra in um, McCoy's head, you know, which I'm assuming, and it's been years since I read the first six issues of this series, I'm pretty sure they don't talk about that at all until maybe even this issue. Hmm. And they do refer to it several times, although without actually coming out and saying, Oh, Spock's in his head because they they still don't know yet. Right, and and Sarek has that conversation with Amanda, which you know I watched Star Trek three uh, day before yesterday, so that I would kind of have a frame of reference because I hadn't seen it in in many years. I mean, in that movie, Sarek's kind of a jerk, and he's like very like everybody needs to stop because I need to talk to Kirk about Spock's Katra. Right, right. Whereas in this story, he's like. Tells a man, "Oh, I'll get to it here in a second. And then he goes out the uh-huh. living room, and Kirk's leaving, and he's just like, "Bye, Kirk. We'll talk later." <laughs> I, I still wow. want to really talk to you if way. you have my the um, immortal soul of my son. Uh huh. See you later. <laughs> well, and uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm sure he didn't quite say it in quite that way. And uh, you know, Kirk and Bones are on, you know, halfway beaming out. 
Yeah, so he wasn't going mean, to have a chance to talk to him. But I mean, the Savic, the the Sarek in Star Trek Three. I mean, he basically just barges in on Kirk and makes Kirk stop everything that he's doing so that he can start uh, asking about Spock's Katra. So I'm yeah. just saying, he's very abrupt in Star Trek Three, and in this one, he's kind of like, "Here's my computer. You can look for Zahn. I'm going to go talk to Amanda, and I'll, I'll get <laughs> well, to I'll, hey. I'll get to Spock here in a second. If we went through all this and he couldn't talk to him, maybe he was a little pissed next time he talked to him in Star Trek Three. <laughs> maybe Look, I tried this being a nice guy. Now I'm going to be a bit of a prick. Okay, there uh, I good am. point. Maybe that's maybe that's why he was so abrupt. Maybe about the Ponfar. I guess we should talk about this in the next issue. But when you go through Ponfar, aren't you supposed to? Isn't that kind of when you get married? So you have the urges. You get with your betrothed. And that's when you get married and consummate the marriage, because that's what I kind of got from the the, the original series. Yeah, but it well, doesn't seem that's what that's what's going to happen with Zahn. It seems more like she just needs to satisfy her <laughs> urges. Her urges, yes. Yeah, it, it um it, maybe it just so happened to be that uh that in a mock time when Spock was going through this, that, that they could have, you know, gotten actually married at that time. But um, did they really talk about a ceremony right there and then in the original series? I mean... Well, I got the feeling that there was going to be a ceremony, except they did the whole fight thing instead. <laughs> Which, by the way, much better choice in my opinion. That's great. <laughs> I especially like when Homer Simpson did, recreated that scene. Anyway, um, yeah. yeah. I, I I thought it was kind of interesting seeing uh, the female half of it. You know, seeing the female going through this. Because like Kirk, I thought this was like a male Vulcan thing. Because, and actually they mentioned this. Uh, they mentioned in this one or the next one. They, uh, they, they, they pointed out how... Um, the two uh, betrothed are supposed to be like in sync or something. Right. So that they're both supposed to be in Ponfar at the same time. Right. But certainly in a mock time, Spock was hurting. And that scheme in which he was supposed to get married to, uh, she seemed fine. You know, she was totally in control. So, yeah. Uh, there's some well, inconsistencies. Right. In, in, the, um, in the novel, Vulcan's Heart, yeah. and the sequel to that one, which I can't remember the name of it right now but in one of those I think it's Vulcan's heart he is when he actually gets married to um, Savick mm-hmm. spoiler alert um, <laughs> and then you know then it's like later much later uh, he starts going through Ponfar and so he has to come back from Euromulus and try to find her um, and he and she's also going through it as well. So both of them were going through it at the same time. And because they were linked, mm-hmm. um, you know, they both knew that they needed to find each other. Ah. Which falls in line with this, the, with that, um, right. Right. that they what needed to be together. Uh, although, well, I don't want to give anything away for issue number eight. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, in part of this... When uh, Savik is trying to get away, uh, you know, from from Vulcan, uh, Kirk tries to enter the prefix codes to take over uh, her ship. 
which um, I was a little surprised about because um, it's a Vulcan ship. Uh, it's it's not an Earth ship. Uh, as far as I know, it's not a Starfleet ship. But who knows, maybe it was a Starfleet ship, although it didn't look like any Starfleet ship I saw. I thought it was just a normal Vulcan ship. So I was just kind of surprised that Kirk would even, I mean, that they would even think no, that, that they would have prefix codes. You know, that's a good point. I didn't even catch that. Yeah, but it was odd. Yeah, and when you talk about the 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 look of that ship, I mean, it it looks kind of like a space shuttle type little triangle type thing, right. and it has the big thrusters. So yeah. I mean, this looks like it's a chemical propulsion yeah, ship, it, I but agree. it but it can still travel at warp. Exactly, which obviously it isn't a chemical propulsion ship, but it sure does look like it because it takes off vertically from the planet, right? Right, and it's got the big plumes of fire and everything coming out of the back of it. Uh, completely agreed with that uh, that thing about it looking like a chemical rocket, which it can't be. Uh, not if it's going to go at warp. Exactly. I mean, come on. These ships should be taken off like the Millennium Falcon. You know, just They hover up or, or like, like, like an X-Wing or something. It just hovers up in the air and takes off. Come on. Exactly. Although I guess if it looks like uh, big flames and stuff, it's more exciting or something. I don't know. Yeah, I got I got a nitpicky thing. If uh, if you if we're through with the Vulcan ship, sure. So when it says that Spock's part of a Vulcan science party when he goes to this abandoned um, settlement, mm-hmm. and they know that it's a Romulan settlement, mm-hmm. and they find the little child there, and he actually makes a comment that she's very Vulcan. I mean, I'm sorry, she's mm-hmm. she's very Romulan. Oh right, right. Which I mean, I, this. It's supposed to happen before yep. the before he Good becomes point. part of Kirk's team, and in yep. Balance of Terror, that's supposed to be the first time that they realize that you know the the Romulan on that little Romulan bird of prey looks just like Spock's dad. <laughs> you sound like one of the nerds at a Star Trek convention pointing out it. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, sir. I'd like to point out something. Yes, I, I'm just saying. Very good good I point. Thought, I agree. I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Do you realize that the Sandbats of Maynard Four could not have possibly been on the ship? <laughs> oh, but come on, you don't think it's funny that the, <laughs> the, the first Romulan that they ever see just happens to look remarkably just like Spock's Sarah. father? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a coincidence! What a coinky dink! Not only do they look just like Vulcans. But he looks just like his dad. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, dad, and of course, being Mark Leonard, that would look like that. I'm kidding. That, that, like I said, it was a nitpicky thing. Yeah, that's cool though. I like it. But you know, it the the I mean, that's a nitpicky thing about Star Trek continuity in general. Yeah. But the other nitpicky thing in that comment was is that it says that he's part of a Vulcan science party. Right. Yet everybody that they show depicted in these pictures of with him and this these other people, they're all human and they're all in Starfleet uniforms. No. Hmm. So I, I thought it was weird that the Vulcan part was in the. I mean, it, it actually says a Vulcan science party. Hmm. Yet the picture just shows one Vulcan and like five humans. Right. Yep. So so that's nitpicky on just the this story in general. Yeah, I had noticed that that they were all human. And that he had claimed that they were a science, uh, Vulcan science party. Didn't notice that. Good catch. 
But uh, but yeah, I agree with you that this this story, at least her backstory, seems kind of abrupt. I mean, it just says that oh he she's half Vulcan and half Romulan, but it still never explains why who her parents were and right. how her parents got together. If if nobody knows that Romulans and Vulcans are offshoots of the same species, right? So that was a little disappointing. But I think that's covered in in some of those. Novels that I was talking about, the uh, the Vulcan's Heart, like by that Josepha Sherman and Susan Schwartz. But just to kind of go, Savick's backstory has also been depicted in two other books. One was Pandora Principle mm-hmm. by Carolyn Klaus, which I've never read, but I do have now, and Unspoken Truth by Margaret Wander Bonanno. So, Banana. Uh, ban- yeah. Good. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. That one just came out here recently, and and I do want to take a look at that because it's supposed to explain why uh, Savick didn't go with everybody back to the Federation in Star Trek Four. Hmm. But I mean, you know, you know, originally why she didn't go back with them, right? Mm, I don't recall it. Well, it, it's cut from the movie, but in the in the movie when they're getting ready to leave, uh, Kirk asks Savick, who's played by Robin Curtis again, mm-hmm. uh, if she's going to go with him, and she says no. And then he asks her, "Are you sure you'll be all right here in your condition?" But they they cut that line out from the from the movie, uh-huh. and her condition would be that she helped Spock out when he was. Growing up on the Genesis planet through his pond far. If you know what I'm saying. Huh. Huh. Huh? Really? Right. So when they're on the Genesis planet and Spock's growing up really fast, he goes mm-hmm. through pond far and, and there's a scene where they, you know, touch fingers and all that stuff and she's able to calm him. Yeah, I know, but that was touching fingers or something. I mean, well, I think they're are they trying to insinuate? I think they are. Well, where was David when all this was going right. on? He was checking out, turning his else. back, turning yeah. his back, turning Vi- his back. You know, videotaping it to put it on YouTube. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was the original intent. Uh huh. In the script, right? Mm-hmm. But it, and it and it makes sense. I mean, if he has to mate or die. Then I don't know. Well, we don't want to ruin things in the next story, but and we won't. But the fires seem to be the fire. <laughs> well, we'll see when we get to the next story. Right, right, right. I just have a comment on that along that same line. Yeah. Uh, warp twelve to Vulcan. Warp twelve. It's I again sweet. must say, it keeps getting. I mean, they just throw these throw, throw these numbers out. Excuse me, sir. I don't think that warp twelve is physically possible. <laughs> well, to, in their defense, I mean, they didn't. The warp ten limit wasn't really established until Star Trek: The Next Generation. So. Well, okay, that's fine. But they keep on throwing these out. I mean, yeah. it used to, in, in the old TV shows like 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 nine or something, and then uh, and then we, we just read a, a comic that just said eleven. And now we got another one saying 12. It's like, jeez. Are you sure that in the old one they didn't go past warp 9? I thought it was 9. I could be wrong. 
I know that in retcon that that's supposed to be the max, but I'm thinking that they went to warp 12 and 13 in the old show. Oh my god. Really? In the original one? Oh, maybe I'm misremembering, but I do oh. I do remember that. So, but I could be misremembering. I've done it before. As have I. As have I. I would not uh, bet too much money on my memory. But I thought it was nine, and then just they keep on throwing these numbers out there. I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, after the refit, obviously things are improved, but jeez. Right. Right. Uh, let's see. What else? Um... Oh, I thought it was pretty cool uh, that they had the Enterprise shields on automatic. Uh, which is pretty handy when they came out of warp at the edge of the galaxy and uh, Savik ended up attacking. Right. So how the shields came on automatically uh, after they came out of warp made a lot of sense. I mean, you you got the ship, you got the sensors going, um, you know, if anything can detect uh, a phaser blast or a ship very close, the sensor should be able to do it and flick those, uh, those shields up. So did they get that after Star? That that seems. I, I, I've never heard of it before. Yeah, I mean that seems contrary to so much of Star Trek because, I mean, they act like putting up your shields is some sort of sign of aggression. So there's many stories where Kirk wants to hold off on raising shields because he doesn't like want to look confrontational. Like in Star Trek the motion picture. In Star Trek the motion picture. Yes. So when they first come in contact with V'ger, although they don't know it's V'ger yet, right? Uh, you know they're just dealing with the cloud at the moment. They purposely keep the shields down, and That's Decker right. keeps on saying, "Don't you want to put the shields up?" No, no, really, don't you want to put the shields up? And then Kirk keeps on saying, "No, I don't want to be provocative. Shut up." So that's right, but I, I think it's happened before in other yeah, ways. Yeah, it, it has. But if you know you're going to go into a situation that's dicey, um, the heck with being provocative. I want my shields up right away. So it was a good thing they did it, because uh, otherwise Savic could have taken them out right out right away. Yeah, uh, I still don't but, see how they could that little ship could take out the Enterprise. Uh, I agree, I agree. But, but we'll just go with it. Yeah, they they, they had to get this ship uh, good and beat up so that uh, when they they did fight the bird of prey, they would be the underdog and have to come up with something really clever. So they right. did, which is another thing. Um, well, actually, I think it's the next episode where we start seeing this. Yeah, it, it's it's the next episode, or the next issue. Okay. I was going to comment on the cloaking device. <sighs> Spoiler alert, you is. Spoiler alert, sorry. Well, we'll find out about it. Right. Very, so quickly. Matter of fact, shall we move on, or do you have something else? I have one more thing, and yes. this is just a confusion on my part. So, David is traveling to the Enterprise from Regular 1, right? Which is yeah, the space station that they were testing yep. Genesis on yep. in Star Trek Two. Mm-hmm. My understanding was that Regular One is pretty close to the Genesis planet because when Kirk and Khan fight each other there in that nebula, they never went to warp, so they're somewhere within the same solar system as Regular One, right? So you'd think. Yes. So I didn't understand why David traveled from Regular One to the Enterprise so that the Enterprise could then travel to the Grissom. <laughs> so that the Grissom can then travel back to the Genesis planet when Cylon alert should be pretty close. Cylon alert. No, I can understand what you said, and I'm sure the the the, the listeners can too. The, all two of them. 
Hey, we might have three or four by the time this gets aired. Let's hope so. <laughs> but anyways, that was just my scratching my head. I mean, I'm assuming they're doing it so to set up Star Trek Three, where David and Savick are both on the Grissom already. Right. Um, and maybe they wanted to have one last hurrah with a, a David story, mm-hmm. even though he's really underused in these two stories. Yeah, he doesn't do much. But that was my last one. Excellent. So, issue number eight, titled Blood Fever, is published uh, November 1984. So, yeah, that's multiple months later, after the first one. So we get to find out the thrilling conclusion of this story. So, uh, writers Mike W. Barr, artists Tom Sutton, and Ricardo Villagran, so slightly different artists. Um, Ricardo's the same, Tom is not, he's new. Uh, Michelle Wolfman, same colorist. Uh, John Costanza, same letterer. And Marv Wolfman, same editor. Okay, synopsis. Um, Cover shows Savick with a phaser in one trembling hand and the other hand on the chest of a fallen Zahn, her betrothed and future husband. He is in front of what appears to be a crashed ship, totally surrounded by six gun-wielding Romulans. The lettering on top states, The Romulans are back! And on the bottom... And Savick's in trouble. The first page is uh, made up of one full panel, showing Kirk, Sulu, David, and others in distress over the attack that Savick is mounting on the Enterprise's backside. On the edge of the galaxy, Savick is out of her mind with the blood fever and thinks the Enterprise is a Romulan ship that can tell her where her betrothed Zahn is. She keeps attacking the Enterprise's rear shields and won't let the Enterprise turn to give the rear shields a rest. These are good tactics that end up taking a heavy toll on the Enterprise. Since Kirk can't fire on Savick and he can't take over her ship remotely, Kirk finally decides to play dead by dropping shields and shooting true two gravitic mines out in front of the ship. The mine explosions and the drop in power emissions convince Savick the Enterprise is severely damaged. Rather than pressing her point and forcing the apparently disabled Enterprise to tell her where Zahn is, Savick just takes her victory and leaves the area. Anyway, uh, Kirk decides to follow Savick with their cloaking device turned on, which is an unexpected move. Elsewhere at the edge of the galaxy, a traditional Romulan bird of prey, just like in Balance of Terror, is in orbit around a planet. Commander Tal is talking wirelessly to a scientist named Lar, down on the planet in a ground base. The scientist claims all the preparations are complete and nothing can go wrong. Commander Tal states his doubts and says he will speak to Centurion Zahn now. Zahn is apparently, indeed, Savick's betrothed, who is undercover as a Romulan centurion. His his advantageous role as the apparent head of security is giving him a front-row seat to the most dangerous Romulan experiment that Zahn thinks he needs to inform Starfleet of immediately. Five genetically engineered Romulan super-soldiers are going to be exposed to the same mysterious energy from the phenomenon at the edge of the galaxy that turned Gary Mitchell and Dr. Elizabeth Daner into something akin to a god. The experiment begins as an antenna as, a, as an antenna charged with negative energy begins drawing energy from the phenomenon, 
and pumps it into the five subjects. The drawn energy levels grow exponentially and begin to fry Dr. Lars' equipment. Just as Zahn screams for the doctor and his assistant to get down, the room and the five subjects, or the, the, the room with the five ju- subjects, explodes. Though the explosion should have killed them all, five subjects emerge from the wreckage with glowing eyes. Unlike M- Mitchell and Daner, the newly minted gods seem to be taking orders quite well from Lar, and indeed they act almost like uh, willless robots. As time goes on, the subjects demonstrate vast powers of telekinesis and the ability to see things with their minds alone. Frustrated with the commander's desire for more tests before Romulan High Command is informed of the success, Dr. Lar tells one of his supermen to reach out with his mind, see the commander's ship, and report on what he is doing. Instead, the superman reports that he sees another ship, that is landing 17 kilometers from the laboratory complex. Ha, such precision. Zahn hurries out of the lab, saying he will investigate the supposed ship. While driving a speeder-like ground vehicle, Zahn thinks of how good it is to get away from the Romulans to give his emotional facade a break. He tries to think of a way for him to get word to Starfleet about this new Romulan threat. He thinks the supposed ship is a meteor, but is surprised to see it's actually a Vulcan ship. The the surprises keep coming when he sees Savik emerge from the ship, and to top it all off, she is hot to trot. Apparently the heavy but brief necking the two can engage in is enough to calm the Ponfar's effects for Savik. Zahn rushes to make ready their escape in Savik's ship, when Commander Tal's men beam in behind him and take Zahn prisoner. Savik is left hiding behind a large rock, trying to work out her next move, when Kirk contacts her via communicator from the still-cloaked Enterprise. Savik apprises Kirk of what she knows of the situation. Meanwhile, back on the Romulan Bird of Prey, Tal's men are unsuccessfully torturing Zahn to discover his mission. Tal orders them to prepare Zahn for transport to the surface, where another method of information extraction will be performed. On the surface, with the mystery energy continuing to feed into the five supermen, Zahn is restrained in the lab. The Romulans use the combined power of all five supermen to make Zahn speak. On the Enterprise, the cloak is disengaged and Savik is beamed aboard. So far, Chekhov has been unsuccessful in finding the one Vulcan on the ship full of Romulans. Savik says Zahn is not on the planet, and takes over a science station to scan for him. She goes on to say it is logical that the spiking power readings at the lab are being used to elicit information from him. Kirk decides to use the ship's phasers to cut off that power, and proceeds to destroy the antenna. With the mystery power cut off, the five subjects lose the light in their eyes and their powers. Zahn is beamed out of his bonds and on to the Enterprise. The still-damaged Enterprise makes best warp speed to get away from the planet. The Romulans pursue at maximum warp with their devastating plasma weapon at the ready. As the Romulans gain ground on the Enterprise, Kirk makes the unexpected uh, orders to divert power to the sensors and communications. Kirk tells Uhura to use the increased gain to jam the bird of prey sensors and increase power to their identification beam. 
Kirk leads the Romulans towards the barrier, which they themselves cannot see until too late. The Enterprise veers away from the energy barrier, while the bird of prey continues onto it at warp speed. Lost forever in the barrier, with their navigation equipment ruined, the Enterprise makes their escape. They make best speed to the Grissom, where Savick and David will disembark to start their studies of the Genesis planet. Savick spends some time in Six Bay with Zahn, who Dr. McCoy has nursed back to health with his inexplicably masterful knowledge of Vulcan physiology. Hint, hint. Savick and David beam over to the Grissom. Kirk comments to Zahn on what a fine pairing he and Savick will be. The end of the story. Yeah, then, but you forgot Zahn then tells Kirk that he and David are a good match as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, okay, <laughs> yes. I did not include, since it's a synopsis, I did not include everything that happened in the story. No, but, but you know, we, we've talked about how things usually end on a little joke, and, and that is the last, uh, the last line in the... In oh, was that a joke? I, I didn't take know. that as a joke. It just seemed weird. He's like, it, I, I took it as weird because yeah. it almost sounded gay. But <laughs> as as do you and your son, Captain. May you live long and prosper. I mean, yeah, it just I, <laughs> that was just weird. I, I I took it as just I, I didn't. Yeah, I just took it as just Zahn saying, "Hey, you guys make a cute couple." And that's it. Yeah, no, 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 no harm to the to the comment. Right. I, I didn't think there was any harm. I, again, I thought they were trying to make a joke, and I didn't quite get it. Yeah. So overall, I think it was a good story, good ending. The Romulans are defeated. Savic gets her Zahn fix. The situation start up for Star Trek three. Um, like I said before, I like I like the Marvel Marvel's Savic origin story better, but I like how this and the previous issue uh, acts as a nice little adventure between the two movies. Yep. Although it. I mean, it explains why David's going to the Grissom. It never explained why Savick goes with him on that last panel. It's just like all of a sudden yeah. she's on the transporter too, waving yeah. by. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think that that's a hundred percent just a match up with the movie. Uh, what happened in the third movie? Yeah. And, and and why is Savick even down there with David? Well, you know how they like to spread around the crew a bit. Like in Star Trek Two, when Chekhov is uh, with the captain right. of the Reliance, uh, you know, I'd like to spread them around a little bit. You know, well, it, you know, it kind of makes sense why Savick would be there because she was there when the Genesis planet was created, so she would have the most scientific knowledge of the planet, aside from you know David, who created the uh, <laughs> proto matter or whatever. Who, yeah, who's been working with it for the past uh, who knows how many years. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a that's a justification. I don't think it's a good one, but yeah, that's possible. So you know, I mentioned earlier in Star Trek Three how you know upon rewatching it, I get I get that I think that Savick and and Spock had a relationship while he was growing old, but as a kid watching Star Trek Three, I always thought that David and Savick were somehow in a relationship of some sort. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, just because they're close to the same age and spend a lot of time in the in the book, yeah, you always think people like that, you know, have something going, right? And it just seemed like they were, you know, I I don't know, like I mean, she seemed really upset when he gets killed, and he threw himself t- 
to keep her from you know getting stabbed and you know as a kid watching it because I was what ten years old when this came when that movie came out I always just assumed that they were in a relationship and then now watching it many years later I see that they were not and that it was her and Spock that I think may have had a relationship which makes everything that we talked about interesting which makes everything that we talked about last week about it being kind of creepy that Spock who kind of raises Savick ends up <laughs> marrying her yes very long so, time later but yes but it's almost the exact same thing with Savick I mean Savick yeah. Was there when Spock was growing up? <laughs> she she did have relationship with him when he was going through you know his accelerated puberty thing. So kind of in a weird way, you know, Spock Spock kind of raised uh, her, and she kind of raised him. <laughs> it's just in the ways, yeah. It's you know it's it's kind of like the. Uh... The snake eating its tail, the yin and yang, the yeah, the circle of life, blah, 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 blah. But it's just funny how, you know, last week we were talking about how it was kind of weird that Creepy. somebody so old would be marrying somebody that yeah. was raised either as his, his you know, I, she, I, she wasn't really raised as his daughter, but she was definitely raised as a well, he, he was a father figure. Sort. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely a father figure in the Marvel story. In the Marvel treatment. Well, even in this one, too. I mean, she yeah. she talks about yeah. how, you know, though she was raised by his parents, that she idolized him as... And may have loved him. Didn't she say that? Right. Well, she said a, a kind of love. Mm-hmm. But, uh, again... Not a, not a mommy-daddy love, I don't think. No. Or uh, a mommy-daughter love. Or daddy-daughter love. Whatever. Right. Um. Yeah, and, and actually... That kind of makes some sense because, um, also, I mean, Savik, as near as you can tell in the com- these comics, is she never got a chance to consummate anything with Zahn. Although I suppose it's possible, um, so that she, you know she could still have some residual um, pent up frustrations by the time she's on the Genesis planet. Well, I you think I think it's definitely implied that they they did. Well, they certainly didn't do it on the planet, so they must have done it in sickbay. I don't know. What makes you when think they recovered? didn't do it on the planet? Because things happen too quickly. How do, how, you don't know how how long they're there before the Romulans show up to, to okay. kidnap. So I'm Zahn. There's this big, huge secret going on here, and i got to get back and let the Federation know about it. Um, here's a Vulcan ship that's landed on my lap. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but... I, I don't think you're going to be uh, dawdling much. Especially if you want to get away from a bird of prey. You don't know how the pond fire makes you feel. You're not thinking <laughs> straight. Well, no, no, but that's not Zahn. Zahn didn't have the pond fire. It's Savik that had the pond fire. I, I get what you're saying. I'm just <laughs> saying that she does get better pretty darn quick. And I know. It doesn't say how much time elapsed between that smooching scene where she basically jumps on him and then the next one the next panel which he basically says are you feeling better and she says somewhat (laughs) (laughs) are you feeling better it's funny how you say that (laughs) to support your position sir which is a which is a uh, a very shaky one might I say (laughs) anyway all right I really liked how they were doing the galactic barrier thing, and the Romulans were trying to recreate a uh, um, uh, what was his name, Charlie? 
No, that was a different guy that Mitchell? had the same thing. Gary Mitchell. Gary Mitchell, right. Yes, trying to recreate some of the things that happened in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right, although it, it never mentions him by name, Gary Mitchell. No, it doesn't, but, but it's if, the edge of the galaxy. Yeah. They've got glowing eyes, you know. Right, right, right. I just wish they would have thrown something in there for, you know, maybe like me as a kid when I read this who hadn't watched all the episodes of Star Trek, the original series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really catch what was going on here. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and I just I just assumed, and I think rightly, that it was uh, it was the same kind of phenomenon. Oh no, you're absolutely right. Although, um, you know, it all behaved so differently. I mean, once they got zapped, Mitchell had the eyes go glowing, and he didn't have a continuous feed of that energy. I mean, at least that you could see. Um, you know, he he was zapped, and he had it, and he was getting more powerful all the time. Right, but um, I think that was because they were trying to go through the barrier, where this is like a planet that's close to the barrier that they're using that antenna to kind of harness the stuff. So maybe right. because he's not, they, these guys aren't getting quite as concentrated maybe, a dose. Maybe, maybe, but yeah, definitely they 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 have to continue to get the power, or they don't they don't have they don't feel the effects. Right. Also, uh, uh, the comment about how docile these guys are. I mean, uh, Mitchell and Daner was like, woo. You know, screw humanity, we're gods. Uh, but these guys are like, yeah. What do you want, Doctor? You know, Doctor Lar. Yeah, whatever you want. Yeah, maybe that was the conditioning that they went through before. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, that was a good point. So uh, you mentioned something about a cloak. Oh yeah. So we, of course, all know that uh, towards the end of the uh, the TV series. Um, in the Enterprise incident, um, the Enterprise was able to make off with a cloaking device. Very handy. Um, but, you know, you, you got to kind of wonder, hey, why don't they ever use it? If they got it, come on, what a tactical advantage that is. And, of course, they do in uh, Deep Space Nine with the Defiant and everything. But um, I don't... Am I, am I wrong about... Did I miss something? But in the movies, in the original Trek... Any of the original Trek movies, uh, the Federation never used a cloak. That's right. I mean, except, of course, in the Enterprise incident when they had to try to get away. Right. No, absolutely but. right. And that threw me for a loop, too. And I had to kind of thumb through issues one through uh, six. And mm-hmm. uh, I didn't read them, but I did kind of go through them. And I didn't see anywhere in those six issues that it talked about them installing a cloaking device. Hmm. So I mean, maybe when we go back and 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 actually read read those, maybe something in those six issues had the Enterprise getting a cloaking device. But uh, that definitely threw me for a loop too, because I did not remember the Enterprise ever having one. Right. So uh, definitely handy in this story. We didn't want that Romulan bird of prey uh, seeing the Enterprise uh, any earlier than it did, but it just seemed a bit too handy. Agreed. Agreed. It's like uh, James West always having the right gadgets up his sleeves for well, any situation. Well, James Bond, too. Q always gave him just exactly True. what he was going to need. The last thing I have on this is just about Zahn in general. So if you have anything else... Um... Oh, I have something to say about Zahn, too. Okay. Okay. Especially at the end, when Zahn is being tortured, he looks like Namor. The Submariner? Yeah, he does. The Submariner. Totally. He's got he, he's he's got the same ears, 
you know, Namor, you know, he looks Vulcan. Uh, you know, and then the arched eyebrows, and then, of course, he's all muscly and stuff and has a shirt off. And he has green pants. he looks like Namor. <laughs> green? Really? Yeah. When he's, like, on the torture thing, he has green pants. <laughs> That's funny. But, That's yeah, cool. I didn't see it at first, but, yeah, he totally does look just like Namor. But then uh-huh. Namor looks just like a Vulcan, so. Yeah, exactly. Which came first? Uh, I, 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 I don't know for sure. I would really never followed uh, the Submariner story much. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Submariner came first because I think the Submariner came out back when Marvel was still called Quarterly Comics, and oh, really? that would have been like the 40s and 50s because right. Submariner and and Captain America were the two comic book characters that Marvel brought back into Marvel continuity in the 60s. Ah. So I'm pretty sure Submariner's older than Spock. Well, what I was going to mention about Zahn was that, uh, and this is more of outside of the story, but in Star Trek, when they were trying to bring it back for the the TV show, Star Trek Phase Mm -hmm. 2, and Leonard Nimoy said that he was not going to come back, Mm -hmm. and even when they started making Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Nimoy still was saying he was not going to come back, they were going to have a full-blooded Vulcan as the first officer, and his name was going to be Zahn. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, they wrote... I mean, you could buy a book that has all of... Or not all of them, but maybe like 12 or 13 scripts that were going to be the first 12 or 13 episodes of Star Trek Phase 2. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the what Zahn was going to go through is kind of what they did with Data in Star Trek the Mo- uh, Next Generation, where you had a character that was 100% emotionless, where you know right. they were saying Spock did have emotions, but yep. this, this Romulan has none. He's, he has no humanity uh, at all. Um, but obviously when Nimoy did come back, they, they no longer needed Zahn, and I think he had like a cameo in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, but when he died? I don't think he was the one that died. I think he was on one of the space stations or something. Because I just remember yeah. him like talking to somebody on the comm or something. Uh, oh. hmm. Or at least the guy that and they... And he was identified as Zon? No, but he was the guy that they had cast to play Zon. Oh. Oh. Because, oh, okay. I mean, like I said, I they you. already had the guy. He was ready to go. <laughs> he was going to be a regular on the show. Right. And then, you know, the last minute they were like, eh, instead of a show, well, let's make a movie because this Star Wars movie's doing pretty well. Uh-huh. And then, <laughs> then right at the last minute, they're like, "Hey, uh, Nemo's back. You get a cameo. See you later." <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for playing our game. Yeah, so I read I read a thing about him, and he was talking about how he was preparing for the role, and he would yeah. go bowling at, in character. So nah. <laughs> he he would go and do these really emotional things, but you know, with other people that were emotional, but he would stay in character so that he would right. could you know he could get into the mindset of not having emotions and stuff yeah and it's just sad that he then gets kicked to the curb <laughs> roughly <laughs> <laughs> that's too bad all right that's all i had for these two issues i think they were good but yeah they were good um i just want to make one more comment and this is not an unusual thing but uh the cover of the of issue 8 um the way it's depicted, it didn't happen in the book, which, quite frankly, it's not all that unusual. You know, they put a little grabber thing on the cover that makes you want to buy the book, but you get inside the book and really exactly what is pasted on the cover 
never really happened. Well, I mean, he he gets captured there by the Vulcan ship, but yeah, she never gets yeah. she never gets captured like that. Well, yeah, she's not surrounded by a bunch of uh, Romulans. True. Um, he's not down and hurt, and she's not protecting him. Right. Um, you know, it just didn't happen. I'm sorry. No, I agree with you. And, and the ship looks looks crashed, and it, and the ship wasn't crashed. Uh, I mean, they were going to take it and leave. So, I don't know. Yeah. There were a lot of things that were inaccurate in the cover. That's true. I just thought I'd mention it. I actually do have one more thing about the Romulans in this story. Um, yes. You know, this this book was published after Star Trek II and, and right before Star Trek III. So we're used to seeing both the Klingons and the Federation ships looking modernized and not like yes. the 60s versions. Yep. Yep. Unfortunately, we never got the Romulans in that new era. So these Romulans <laughs> are drawn in the same really cheesy costumes they had in the old show. Well, okay. I, I thought you were going with the ship not being no different. Well, that was, I mean, the, that was the, my the, next the bird, Okay, so the Bird of Prey looks nothing different from the show. It's 100% what was in the Balance of Terror. Uh, I think that was first season. Uh, maybe it was second. No, it was I, first I season. Was first. Uh, but, quite frankly, the outfits, I mean, in Balance of Terror anyway, uh, Mark Leonard... Did not have an outfit anything like these guys in this comic book. Well, like the uh, Centurions there. Yeah, he did. No, nah, I I don't think so. These guys got helmets and stuff. Yeah, but they had helmets later on. Well, well in Balance of Terror, they had helmets. Yeah, and they had this all this body armor looking stuff. No, maybe really? not in Balance of Terror. I'm talking about later on in in in. The TV show with with the Romulans. I mean, that wasn't the only episode they were in. Well, no, th- no, but I mean that was a pretty important one. Oh, it, uh, the Enterprise incident, where in, uh, I mean that was with the Romulans too, right? Um, and and that that female uh, Romulan captain. I mean, right? She didn't have any. She didn't have anything on her head. Uh, yeah, but the, I, but I, the Centurions I, did. I mean, they had that weird-looking helmet that looks just like their heads do in Star Trek The Next Generation. So you know how the Romulans in Star Trek The Next Generation have a very pronounced forehead? Yeah. Their heads actually look just like the the helmets did in the original series, kind of shaped the same way. So when you watch an original series and you see that helmet, you can kind of envision that maybe their head was really shaped like that underneath, which obviously was not the case. I mean, but... But the makeup artists in Star Trek The Next Generation took that into account when they redesigned the Romulans. Right. But but here in the picture on mm. page 10, when the when these super Romulans are using their force powers, I mean, right. their outfits there are very similar to what Mark Leonard wore, as I Well, recall. let me go with... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, because that's not the armor and stuff. Yeah. But, but quite frankly, I'm looking at that telekinesis thing, and... They got like some weird kind of skirt things that thingies on. I mean, yeah, that he did too. They're, they look like hmm. Roman centurions and things like that. I mean, that, that's what they're going for. Okay, but I remember Roman centurion. Well, okay, I'll have to go back and watch a few episodes. I do not remember helmets. I do not remember outfits like this. But I'll, I'll look. I'm pretty sure. But but basically, okay. my point was is that it's unfortunate that you know we get to see modern Klingons and modern Federation technology and, and uniforms, but 
you know, because the Romulans have never been in a TV or a movie, they're still stuck in these kind of cheesy, <laughs> cheesy <laughs> looking cheesy costumes and, and yeah. equipment. Right. That's it. Cool. Cool. A good, good, good two issue series. Yep. Or a two issue story. Yep. Shall we go straight into the comic strip? Let's do it. And un- let's comic eyes. Unfortunately, this comic strip was is probably the longest one we've read so far. Uh, so bear with me because it gets a little repetitive. So I've tried to streamline it as much as possible. Okay. But uh, so here we go. Comic strip number six, uh, the Hoosin Gambit. Uh, it came out starting September 7th, 1980, and finished um, January 17th, 1981. Mm-hmm. All right. And it was writer was Thomas Warkenton, uh, based on a story by Tom Durkin, and artist was Tom Thomas Warkenton again. So, uh, like I said, starting this story on, um, Thomas Warkenton uh, starts getting help from other people, both later on in art and in the writing. All right, so the synopsis. So the story starts off with a montage of pranks, short tempers, and crew members behaving, um, having trouble uh, concentrating. So basically everybody's kind of acting off. Uh, McCoy believes that there's an epidemic taking over the Enterprise. Boredom. Uh, Kirk decides to head to Hoos 24. So that's H-U-S-24, Hoos 24. Uh, for some short leave and to perform the biannual maintenance duty. Uh, as the crew approach Hoos 24, they're informed that another ship, the USS Venture, has already put in as well for repairs and, and its biannual maintenance. Uh, Kirk is excited when he hears this news because he's going to get to meet the captain. Her name is Avery Morgan. Uh, last name Morgan. Okay, so yeah, her name is Avery Morgan. All right, so the senior crew of the Enterprise is invited to a dinner aboard the Venture. Which- I'm sorry. What? It's Captain Morgan Avery. All right, My so mistake. her first name is Morgan, her last name is Avery. Yes. Okay. That's it. All right, so the senior crew of the Enterprise is invited to a dinner aboard the Venture, which is an old-class, uh, Constitution-class ship, so it hasn't got the refit that the the Enterprise has. Uh, at dinner, uh, the two crews are introduced, uh, polite dinner conversation ensues, and then Kirk informs the Venture, uh, the Venture uh, crew that Hoos 24 uh, has... Is not excuse me. He basically informs them that Who's Twenty Four is incredibly boring. It's one of the worst vacation spots in the galaxy, much to their dismay. Uh, we see lots of crew grumbling about how boring it is there. Uh, the venture science officer keeps telling Spock how he has mastered 3D chess and it's no longer a challenge to him, uh, which Spock spends a lot of the time in the in this series uh, thinking about this, pondering why. Uh, how somebody could master it. Uh, while the two crews are mingling and uh, during their shore leave, uh, we see them like playing softball and things like that. We learn that the venture crew is almost completely done with their biannual maintenance. Um, and then there's lots of speculation as to how they got finished so quick. And then they discover that uh, the Houston workers are actually augmenting their staff, uh, helping them uh, speed it up so, uh, quite a bit faster. Uh, Kirk agrees to do the same, except for critical components like sick bay. As the crews are getting some more R&R, the Hoosens are busy with the maintenance aboard the two ships. Uh, Spock has more time to brood over his chess game, uh, and the, the guy that he's playing chess with, his name is Hataz. But 
at this point in the story, Hetaz is still refusing to play with him because there's just no challenge. Uh, Scotty starts working on a distillery to create a little bit of moonshine. Uh, Sulu is playing some softball, and Uhura finds some time to do some singing. Uh, Kirk is able to find some uh, alone time with Captain Avery Morgan to play a little bit of ton- uh, tonsil hockey. Which is obviously tonsil hockey. That's Kirk's favorite pastime. <laughs> I did never. I know that. I just never heard it called that before. But uh, I've heard it somewhere. I just thought it was funny. All right. So when, once the maintenance is finally done, the crew, the two crews of the ship, uh, the the crews of the two ships are preparing to depart on their respective missions. When the Husans dis, uh, stun both crews and take over the ships, uh, the men wake up chained in a Husan. Or mine, uh, where they're told by the Husin leader, whose name is Edram, that they are now slaves and they're going to work there until they die. Uh, the women are kept on the surface where they toil in the fields. So basically, the men are down in the ground in the mines, and the women are having to work on the fields. Um, as the women are preparing are planning a, an escape. Uh, we see that the men are down there trying to do the same thing. Uh, Kirk is introduced to a oddly shaped alien dude named Lieutenant Tolb. Uh, Lieutenant Tolb thinks that he might be able to squeeze out of his chain because they're actually chained on their necks. He thinks that he can pull the collar off of his head uh, because he doesn't have a skull, but the risk is is that his he could damage his eyes if he tried it, so Kirk doesn't want to try that just yet. Uh, meanwhile, on the ship, the Husins are having a hard time learning how to control the two vessels. Um, they're trying to get... Uh, like the uh, autopilot to work, but then they find out that they need a pre-programmed code word. Uh, Edrum returns to the mines and confronts Kirk uh, for the password. He states that he will return in two hours, and if he does not get the password in those two hours, he will kill 20 crewmen. Uh, while they're waiting for the two hours to pass, the, the crew go ahead and attempt their escape. Lieutenant Tubb painfully squeezes his head out of the collar. Uh, and there's even a point where he needs Dr. McCoy to keep his eyes in or help guide his eyes through. It, it's it's incredibly painful looking, uh, pulling this thing off. So once the collar is actually taken off, uh, Tolb says that he can still see, but his, his vision is slightly blurry. Uh, so then they start their escape. So now we get flashed back up to the surface, and Captain Morgan is telling uh, Uhura that she thinks that she can cause a fire or start a fire there in the fields using her glass earrings. Back in the mines, Kirk calls the Husan guard over in the guise of sending a message to the leader. Uh, when the guard comes up, Tulb surprises the guard, and there's a brief fight, and Tulb ends up with the, uh, with the rifle. Um, the other guards see that the uh, Tolb has escaped and has gotten the uh, the rifle, and they try to shoot Tolb, but they end up shooting the guard instead. Uh, a, a short firefight ensues. Tolb is reluctant to return fire because the rifle is stuck on kill mode. Uh, eventually, he does get over that, and he actually shoots and kills one of the guards, which uh, that scares all the other guards, and they they flee. Uh, Tolb uses the gun to free the rest of the crew members from their chains. Uh, and in so doing, he depletes the charge on or the charge on the uh, rifle. Uh, just then, many many more guards uh, arrive. Um, Kirk takes the empty rifle and says that he's going to bluff his way uh, with the incoming army. Um, 
Kirk ends up getting the drop on the guards because he hides behind a rock, and then when they pass him, he jumps up and says, Surrender, because I never miss. Um, the Husins, not being very warlike, uh, they just drop their guns and surrender. Uh, back on the surface, the women start the fire uh, with Ahura running around with a torch, spreading the fire um, throughout the fields. Uh, once the fields are ablaze, they head back towards the uh, the mines in order to save the men. So back in the mine, the men uh, take a mine car up to the surface. Uh, and then we see that the Edran knows that they're coming up in the in the uh, mine car, and he puts some trucks on the tracks so that uh, the, the mine car wouldn't be able to escape. So the train ends up ramming these trucks and is derailed. Uh, once the men jump out of the the the, the once the men jump out of the derailed train, uh, the Hussein just starts shooting them, and we see quite a few um, quite a few crew members getting hit and evaporating because uh, the, all the guns are set to kill. Um, they get pinned down um, and uh, they set one of the phasers to overload, uses it as a, uses it as a grenade, and then they're able to overcome uh, a small army of the uh, Husan. But Edram, the leader, takes a few of the of his guards up to a hill, and uh, again they have the men pinned down again, who are hiding behind some rocks. So, unbeknownst to Edram, who's up on this hill, the women are actually on a cliff, which is above him. They cause this little avalanche, and then they start attacking the rear, while the men use the uh, distraction to attack the uh, the front, and they end up in the middle, and they're able to take over all the, the Hussein army. But we see quite a few deaths of both men and the women. Uh, once all the dust is cleared, uh, Edram and Scotty are both missing. Uh, the crew member fear that both of them were vaporized by some of the the shots that were set to to uh, set to disintegrate. Um, just as they're thinking that everybody's dead, Scotty shows up carrying Edram and the keys to the collars. So later aboard the Enterprise, Captains Kirk and Morgan reflect on the battle and the loss of all the lives. Um, as the two ships depart, Kirk informs the crew that the Husans, as a race, will face trial for their crimes. And then Spock states that his chess game with Hazog or Haztog is over and that it was a stalemate, which which I thought was odd because I never really got the feeling that they were even playing. I always thought it was more Spock wanted to play and couldn't understand why Haztog wouldn't play with him. And uh, that's actually where it ends. So that was the last little joke. Yeah, yeah, they they were playing, just not. I mean, they had their own chessboards and their own uh, ships, and they were mostly playing by radio. Yeah, but when did they ever start playing? Because because when he's actually talking to him, he's always saying the the other guy is always saying that he doesn't want to play because it's not a challenge. But I don't. I didn't ever catch where he said, "Okay, Spock, I'll play with you." Well, I thought they did, and uh, not only that, there are multiple points in time when they refer to Spock um, pondering, brooding, the game. Right. pondering the game. That's it, pondering. No, it says brooding, so, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Spock is really, uh, you know, working on these next moves um, that his opponent is uh, is doing. Yeah. So, the, 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 the two brig brain first officers... Um, End up in a stalemate, but I must say that um, that the other guy, what's his name again? 
Uh, Hasthog or whatever. Hasthog. Something like that. Um, I mean, Spock is like, you know, I think I'm going to beat you. But he he's quoting like forty two percent chance or something like that of maybe he'll 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 beat Spock, but this guy's like I got a hundred percent chance of beating you, cowboy. So it's like uh, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, and I kind of like the way they drew uh, Hasthog Hasthaws whatever his name is. I mean, they drew him like the mad scientist with the the big oh yeah the right big, yeah. thick glasses and the bald head. Yeah, yeah, he does kind of have a uh, Doctor Evil look to him. Yep, he does. So overall, what do you think of the story? Because I'll be honest, I didn't really care for this one. I liked it because of the action and and two starships having their people moved off completely, and then them having to uh, and them getting all grisly and stuff in captivity and having to really fight and taking some pretty significant casualties getting back. I mean, back in Voyager, uh, when they when everybody got kicked off the ship, uh, you know, not too many people got killed. Um, this one, it looks like they really took some uh, casualties. It, it just seemed to make it a little bit more, um, yeah, a little more at stake. No, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think this is probably the most violent story we've read so far because, right. I mean, there is a lot of people getting killed in this one, and it shows them all evaporating. I mean, we've seen it onesies, twosies in other stories, but in this one. It's there's quite a few people who get killed, and right. then then in the if you read you know if you read the words not just the visuals I mean it, they're the way they talk even more people are getting killed. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was kind of odd. I mean, that seemed yeah, is... really violent. Yeah, for a comic strip. And and, <laughs> and these guys look so non-imposing. I mean, they look like little oh, yeah. stuffed bears or something. Well, you know, they, they, even though they don't they don't look 100% like them, they reminded me a lot of the Ferengi, um, and who also took over Enterprise D at one point. Um, you know, they're small, they're ugly, um, they even got big ears and stuff. But um, That's a good point. Now, now, these guys came out before the Ferengi. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they, they just reminded me of some little pricks just trying to... Yeah, but these these guys were a little a little bit smarter because I mean they they were able to fix the ships and stuff even though they didn't know how to control them. But right, well, it, the Frankies are pretty smart though. Yeah, except they are. for you know, I mean something I mean, that that one brother, yeah, Nog's, I, I know. Nog's father isn't uh, that too was bright. Very but... stereotypical of me. I I apologize. I didn't mean to offend all offend of any our Frankies. incredibly intelligent Frankie listeners that might be out there. <laughs> I apologize. That was uh, that was bad form on my part. Right, but they do remind me of Frankie's. Yeah, I totally see it a little bit. So, I thought it was funny. I mean, these guys, these these Hussein are actually maybe about a head or so shorter than than anybody on the Enterprise, except for the leader who's wearing these incredibly tall, shoes. tall <laughs> platform shoes. Yeah. Well, but what I thought was funny is that Kirk even calls it out. He's like. Who's the who's the clown in the in the platform shoes? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just like, That's funny. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, but but how much time do you think passed from the time they got captured to the time they escaped? Well, they got they got they got multiple days growth of beard going, right? Which I thought was pretty good. I mean, uh, I don't know, five days, six days. 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's just a long time for them to be captured. And, I mean, the women, it doesn't ever show that the women have shelter or anything. So, I mean, are we supposed to think that they're just always living in the living fields? under the, yeah, under the sun or the moon and in the fields that they're, I guess, cutting down? It never really even said what they're doing in the fields. It just said working the fields. Yeah, well, they're probably. But they, uh, they didn't have any utensils, I mean, they're, so they're, they weren't hoeing or anything. Well, I thought there actually was a picture with them uh, at one point with kind of like a pitchforky kind of thing. Uh, was there? Maybe. I just don't remember that. Uh, I think there is. Yeah, I have to go back. Well, oh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, there is. They have like little weird pitchforks. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they're pretty crude looking too. Yep. I mean, they're I mean like, these guys... Yeah, they're like little three claws, like a rake right. with only three claws. Right. Yep, you're right. I apologize. You are correct, sir. No problem, man. But, yeah. So, uh, I thought it was great how they had the ladies not just being helpless sirens waiting for their men to rescue them. So, I thought that was good. Yep, I did too. Um, and when they first mentioned Captain Morgan, besides thinking of rum, I was thinking um, that she might have been a chick. Because Kirk had a lot of interest. It was either a chick or it was a hell of a, um, a hell of a, uh, impressive captive. Right. I first thought of, uh, Frazier. <laughs> in that one Next Gen episode? Yeah, in that one Next Gen episode, his name is Captain Morgan. <laughs> yeah. I did, I did not remember Which that. Captain Morgan would have been around at this point in time. Uh, I think he would have been. I think he would have been. But this is definitely not him. No. Because I would not have wanted to see Kirk smooching on Kelsey Grammer. No, no. Actually, she she actually she looks like a um a lithe petite little lady. Yeah, she's really tiny, and yeah. she has the like the really short fob type haircut. Yeah. That just makes her look even smaller. Yeah, but she knows what she's doing because she obviously took control there uh, with the women on the surface and and got them free. Exactly. Yep. Without the the commanding stature of a Janeway, she was able to uh, be the captain. Yep. And a successful one. And I do find it funny the the tool that they used to plan their escape was a piece of jewelry. <laughs> To 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 light the uh, the dry wheat or whatever that stuff was, yeah. Kaylee. So I just think that uh, you know maybe Picard, when he wouldn't let Ensign Rowe wear her earring, was being a little oh, presumptuous. I think he was. What if they he obviously got, didn't get his history? What if they got captured and they needed that earring to get free? Anyways, yeah. So what do you think about Lieutenant Thub Thulb? <laughs> Thulb. Yeah, how he. Got I, I I thought he. Um. Okay. First off, I thought he looked stupid. <laughs> I mean, he 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 looked like some kind of a uh, a weird looking Disney thing or something. I I I didn't like he, the look of him. Looks like but, a, his head looks like a balloon with goggles on it. Yes, exactly, exactly what it looks like. Um. So I didn't like it from that standpoint, but I did like the fact that um, it was because of the diversity of the crew. 
that they were able to uh, do something that was unexpected. Uh, and that him getting out of those chains was not easy. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't just a, you know, whoop, I've got no skull. Whoop, it's off. Let's go get him. You know, so I'm glad it was uh, it was difficult. But but that, that, that part where he's taking it off, I mean, that was painful for me to read because he's like really <laughs> stretching out his neck and you can yep. and then and, he, and it, I think it's the eye thing that, that, yeah, that and kind he's of like, bugged me he's talking to McCoy he's like please guide my uh, eyes through the rim and I'm just like <laughs> and then you see McCoy like poking his eyeballs back into his head and nah. you're just like oh this is horrible <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah, that was that was kind of like a you know if you saw that's like something you would see in a Saw movie or something where somebody has to oh yeah you know, from to survive yeah they gotta chop off their arm or something yeah or poke out their eyes or whatever they do I mean they're always doing crazy stuff and you want them to do it but you don't want it, but you can't stop watching even though it makes right. you squirm in your seat that was uh, that was how I was feeling there um, I only have one more comment for this whole this whole story so if you have any more I'll let you go first um I thought the Ventures uniform badges were a weak design it's a big thick Y dude that was what I was going to talk about and I liked oh. it you liked it I, I think it looked I think it looked dumb it's not a Y it's a V for Venture it looks like a it looked like a big Y well at least in the one that I looked closely at it looked like a big Y and a big thick kind of stylized Y I could see the Y, but I'm. I thought it was a V when I read it. That, and maybe it was a V. That would make more sense with the name of the ship. But I just, I just didn't like it. I, I, I like. But, but it. look at that. Okay, so. But I didn't understand uh, it. When they're in their dress uniforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that dinner where the two crews got together. Yep. And especially the one engineering guy with the uh, with the crew, uh, crew cut hair kind of thing. Yep. That that looks a lot like a Y to me. It, I just didn't think it looked very good. And that picture does look like a Y, but I didn't catch it there. I caught it later when they're playing softball and stuff that that it was a oh. V. Yeah, but like, well, like v, I said, v, v makes more sense. Yeah, but but I thought it was cool. I liked I liked that they had a different patch because that. Oh, I like they have a different patch, and I'm glad that they continued with that idea from the original series. I guess which you pointed out uh, multiple uh, episodes ago. Yeah, but I don't think it should because. As of Star Trek the Motion Picture, everybody in Starfleet had the same logo. So, I mean, I was thinking, well, maybe because they're in a, an older class ship that they're still using their old mission badges. But technically, they, they should all have the same one. Yeah. Well. But again, that's just me being nitpicky. You being nitpicky, yes. But I, I did like it. I thought it was pretty cool. Okay. I'm surprised you didn't. I just thought it was a bad design. Yeah, I get you. Anyway, but you're going all Cylon-y again. Oh, really? Well, it's because I am a Cylon kid. <laughs> I liked how they how they had Sulu and Chekhov doing the martial arts thing at the beginning. So just kind of remind everybody, you know, they don't just sit around inside the ship getting fat, you know. Starfleet officers are not wimps. They do manly things like that. Right, and then, then they turn the artificial gravity and start floating. Right, right. Um, and, and and another thing, that whole thing about um, all those things going wrong because everybody's bored. I mean, geez, it's just man up a little bit. It's like 
is that the only? I mean, if people, if you're going to get that bored in space, I mean, is this the only time in the in the in the decades that that uh, that Starfleet is operating that a crew gets this bored? It just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. No, to me. it didn't. And then, I mean, they really draw it out when McCoy and Kirk are in the turbo lift, and McCoy's like, "There is a there's a disease on the ship." And then boredom. infecting everyone. And then Kirk's like, a disease? What disease? Boredom. <laughs> da, 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 da. And it's reached epic proportions. And you're just like, really? Come on. But I could see yeah. them I could see them making that joke on the show. Yeah. That's right up the right up their alley. Exactly. Yeah. Anyways. again, I, I thought I didn't hate this story, but I don't know, it just seemed I don't like it when you just fight you fight one group of people and then you just move over here and you have to fight the same group of people and then you move over here and then now you're fighting the same group of people but from two different wow. directions it just I think it would have been better if it was one big battle instead of like three little battles that were they were doing pretty much the same thing oh well yeah I don't know whether that was a, a way of just stretching things out or to, to give a chance for the women to get involved in it or um, to fill, I don't know. But um, I thought it was a little more realistic that it wasn't just over in one battle because a lot of times it's not like that. I mean, right? I don't know. Yeah, multiple skirmishes. Well, I, I think it would have been better if something different was going on. I mean, instead of just we're going to attack these people and then we're going to make it get a little ground and then we're going to attack these people and always hiding behind the rocks and. Oh. Well, they did use uh, a, a hand grenade phaser in one situation. Yeah, that was actually pretty cool. They used a big rock when the women pushed the rock down. Yeah, the old uh, Wally Coyote giant exactly. boulder on top of the cliff. Thing. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very handy placement of that rock, I must say. Yeah, I thought it was funny. They're like, oh, uh, Edmund, Ed, Edren got the high ground right. and then then you see the next panel and it's like but the women have even higher ground uh-huh. and they got a big ass boulder to drop on them you ain't kidding I think it would be uh, more realistic if there were multiple smaller boulders rather than this huge boulder that, that like like 30 women or 40 or 50 or however many women are all trying to push over at once right yeah it's it's that's a big old boulder big old boulder I thought it was odd how how they had those little uh, Starfleet handbook cutout panels in like the, uh, three or four places. Yeah, in, in the, the in trips. the Sunday paper. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was odd. Well, I think but... the reason why they did that is because some Sunday papers would um, would have it as like a vertical comic, and then other ones would have it as a horizontal comic. And when you did it as the horizontal comic, there was an extra panel, so they just filled in that extra panel oh, really? with something. And, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because the website that I was getting these from, because thank goodness there's the internet and, and you can find stuff like this now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would have both the the vertical format and the and the and the horizontal format, and the horizontal f- format always had an extra frame. Ah. So on the ones that it doesn't have that little Starfleet handbook thing, mm-hmm. uh, it the the vertical one would just be missing a, a panel. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Good to know. So it's kind of. I thought it was kind of cool. That little inside baseball kind of uh, explanation there, Donovan. Thank you. And speaking of baseball, they play it here. 
Yes, they do. But, they do. That is part of their recreation. But I thought baseball... I thought it was a dead dead sport. Exactly. What's up with that? Yep. I don't know. <laughs> but then again, that's Cisco time. Yeah, I know. Again, being nitpicky. Yes. No, I thought it was cool. I, again, yeah. I like the story. Just I think I like the other two better. Yeah. Um, let me see. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Scott was not making the still. He was suggesting how to improve it. And offering to be a quality assurance inspector. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he, I think he had his hand in making it. <laughs> there was that uh, There was that book that I read back when we were doing the early voyages era that yeah. had to do with uh, Spock's first mission on the Enterprise. And it had yeah. Scotty in there. And, and basically Scotty's role throughout the whole book was he made a, a little – moonshine thing in engineering and then he had to somehow it was getting irradiated and everybody on the ship started acting funny because they were drinking the the moonshine that was laced with this like radiation, radiation. Hmm. Um, but I thought it was funny I was like they're using Scotty just as a bartender in this whole book and yeah. then in this comic when he's doing the exact same thing I'm like <laughs> I just thought it was funny yeah I was like, I don't think you really. I don't think who the. I don't think he read that book when he when he wrote this comic, but it is funny that that they both kind of have the same thing where Scotty likes him some drink. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's a Scotsman. Come on. I mean, they named the drink after the Scotsman. That's true. I like me a good glass of Scotty every now and then. Hey, hey. Okay, well, that's, uh, I, I liked it. I thought I thought it was a good, good comic strip, but it was long. It was There's long. going on. Yep. Anything else? No. All right, so then uh, let's just do the elsewhere in Star Trek real quick. Uh, so like I said, this was an 80. We're basing it on the, uh, the two comic books, not the comic strip. So in the comic books, which came out in 1984, we had Star Trek Three was about to come out. Um, and the other novels that were coming out around this time was um, in June there was an anthology which is called Star Trek Three Short Stories, which I might be interested to try to find that one. There was a uh, a young adult novel, I guess it says YA novel, uh, The Vulcan Treasure and Voyage to Adventure, which I've never heard of. Um, then there was um, another novel called. Um, Rihan, Rihanasu, number one, mm-hmm. My Enemy, My Ally, by Diane DeWayne. And that's part of like a, a Romulan trilogy that I've heard is really good, but I've never read it. Hmm. And let's see, in, in November, there was a novel called The Vulcan Academy of Birders. And that's it, aside from comic books. So... Uh, a lot of good stuff coming out, and and I think Star Trek Three was the first Star Trek coming Star Trek movie I actually saw at the theater. I remember actually sitting there watching the movie. Hmm. I don't know if I saw Star Trek Two and One at the theater, but I, I know for a fact I saw Star Trek Three. Yeah, which um, I like that movie. I did too. I like that one. Uh, I, it's probably the one I've seen the least out of all the Star Star Trek movies, with exception oh, really? of maybe Part One or yeah. uh, Star Trek One. Motion picture. Yeah. But uh, I watched it just the other day, just so that I could kind of get a time, uh, 
an idea of you know how those two comic books fit into Star Trek Three, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Well, you hear some people talking about the odd and even numbered uh, movies, the odd numbered movies sucking, and the even numbered ones being good. And it's like, uh, okay, to some degree, I can see that one wasn't that good. Five certainly wasn't good. Two was excellent. Uh, a lot of people like number four, the whale one. Uh, I do. I like that one. Too. Yep. But I like number three. I, I like that one. I, Kirk, Kirk gets to uh, little fisticuffs with a with a Klingon. Um, uh, I, I liked it. Yeah, and you, yeah, I really liked Christopher Lloyd as Ken, <laughs> uh, as the Klingon. <laughs> Kirk, give me Genesis, Kirk. Yeah. It's I, I don't know. I, every time I heard that, I just thought Reverend Jim from Taxi. And I know this has come up before. Right. I'm sure. But I'm telling you, <laughs> every time I heard him, I just thought of Reverend Jim and Taxi. Mm. But I thought he did a good job, though. I was impressed. <laughs> and and I, I really enjoyed it when I watched it the other day. Uh, it. I don't. I don't really. I, I've heard the odd numbers sucking, but I mean, one and five. And even those are good. I, I mean, they're not horrible. But you know, Five's when you when bad. you compare all eleven movies, yeah, the, you, something has to be at the end of the spectrum. And you know, those two movies and maybe Insurrection, I would put kind of at the lower end of the scale. And and Star Trek Two, First Contact, the new movie. I mean, those would be kind of at the at the uh, at the higher end. But I mean, even. Even one and five, I don't think are horrible movies. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the latest movie is number eleven. So, number eleven and and the worstness. No, number eleven. Period. Yeah. So, um, that's an that's an that's an odd number, and it's one of my favorites. Exactly. It, it, well, Nemesis was an even number, and I wouldn't put it above. No, that's true. A lot of the odd ones. But Insurrection was an odd one, and it was not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I kind of liked, I kind of liked that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it would have made a good hour-long episode, but right to bring in the whole Federation was trying to steal the Fountain of Youth kind of thing. Just yeah, that didn't make sense. Yeah, the Baku, the Baku. All right, so next week we're going to do – we're going back into our motion picture era, and we're going to do the original Marvel series number eight and comic strip number seven and eight. So it should be a good one. Okay, man. All right. That sounds pretty good. So any any parting thoughts? Uh, just I'm looking forward to next week. Yep. We're almost done with these. There's only 18 of the original Marvel series, uh, five of the Untold Voyages, and there's only 20 comic strips. So we're about halfway almost. Cool, cool. A lot of good stories. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying this, and I really like reading the three different continuities that that all happen in the same time frame, and uh-huh. comparing and contrasting. I, I like right. this a lot better than. My original thought was that we would go through all the original Marvel series and then the comic strips and then the untold voyages, but I, I, I'm I'm really enjoying the way we're doing it this way. Yeah. Mixing it up a bit. Yeah. So, until t- next week, I'll talk to you guys later. 
See you later, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.